You are listening to KMUZ Turner. Visit our website at kmuz.org to see our complete program schedule and learn more about supporting KMUZ. Welcome to The Forum, our weekly public affairs program. We edit and rebroadcast recordings of lectures, interviews, and presentations of public interest to the Mid-Willamette Valley. Find our Facebook page, The Forum on KMUZ, for upcoming topics and to leave comments. Today's forum is a recording of the candidates running for district attorney in Marion County this year who were introduced by program lead Hans West at the Midday Online panel hosted by Salem City Club. Allow me to introduce Paige Clarkson. She is the current district attorney of Marion County. And surprisingly, she started working there even before she graduated from law school. So she spent, I think, a lot of years there. Decades, we can say. She uh, graduated from Willamette University College of Law. She is a member of the Oregon State Bar and serves as president of the Oregon District Attorneys Association since 2019. She serves on many other committees and commissions, and um, she lives here in Salem and has three children, I think, uh, and two dogs or four dogs. Okay, four children, maybe. Okay, thank you. Welcome. And now we have Spencer Todd, who is a Salemite, and he uh, went to South Salem High School and also Willamette University for undergraduate and and the uh, law training, and currently lives here and has worked as a public defender for eight years. Okay, it has become increasingly difficult to retain and hire public defenders during the age of COVID. It's such a big issue that the Chief Justice of the Oregon Supreme Court, Martha Walters, is calling for a summit with legislators and the governor to find solutions for this deepening public defender crisis. So my question, or the question, what reforms or actions are needed to maintain this constitutionally mandated need to provide public defenders for indigent uh, criminal defendants? Oh, and I should add that there are a lot of people, a lot of people who have been well, offenders, I guess, um, who cannot find a public defender uh, currently. So, uh, Paige, on to you. Uh, thank you, Mr. West, and uh, thank you to uh, the Salem Club for hosting this here today. Um, if uh, I'm afforded some time later, I'd be happy to tell you a little bit more about myself and uh, and what the what the DA actually does. Some of you probably have questions about that, so if we have time, I'd be happy to address those things. Uh, As to your question, uh, everyone in the criminal justice process is necessary for justice. Uh, We need criminal defense attorneys. Uh, My opponent has been doing it for eight years, and that's a very uh, unique and necessary job in our criminal justice system. And you need prosecutors. You need people like me whose job it is to keep us all safe and make sure that our community remains a safe place to live, to work, to own a business. Uh, to raise a family like I do. Uh, So uh, all parties in the criminal justice system are necessary. And recently, uh, the lack of uh, appropriate criminal defense has certainly made some headlines uh, in our state news. I will uh, say that we are very lucky in Marion County. The problem is not as dire here. uh, And that is largely due to the fact that we have a very collaborative process led by our presiding judge, Judge Tracy Prawl, as well as myself as the district attorney. The defense bar participates and we collaborate frequently to make sure that people have attorneys and that they are properly represented. 
but all sides need to be properly represented in the process. Uh, the estate defense budget uh, is actually millions of dollars more a year than all 36 DA's offices combined. Uh, so what we need to do is look at the OPDS budget, the Public Defense Service budget, and see if that is uh, operating appropriately and whether they are being responsible for state taxpayer dollars. Your local taxpayers pay for your district attorney's office and your public safety. And it's my job to make sure that we use those resources appropriately uh, to protect public safety. Um, and part of that is to make sure that we have proper and appropriate constitutional defense. Uh, for people that are charged with crimes. That is a necessary part of our process. Um, Spencer uh, and Paige, <laughs> you'll have to excuse me for this. I completely blanked out on the introductory statements. My apologies. Uh, so uh, Spencer, we could have you answer your part here and then maybe go back backwards to the uh, opening statements. Paige, does that work? Go ahead. So I believe, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll just go right ahead. I believe your question was about what reforms can be done. Before I kind of get to answering that question about what solid reforms we actually need, I would just like to briefly address a couple of the points that were just brought up, specifically the giant budget differential and the fact that the public defense spending is $47.5 million higher than the DA's office spending. There's a reason for that. Um, the public defense budget includes the lawyers at the trial level, like me and the people that I work with. It also includes the lawyers doing the appeals for criminal cases on the criminal defense side. It also includes the lawyers doing the post-conviction relief on the criminal defense side. It also includes investigators and the non-routine expense requests that we as lawyers have to fill to hire experts and do all of the things that are involved in a defense case. The budget number for the DA's office is for the DA's office, trial level prosecutions. It doesn't include the police that do the investigations. It doesn't include the Oregon State Crime Lab. It doesn't include the appeals process, post-conviction relief process, or other things that are done by the Department of Justice. So it's a little different than the $47.5 million difference. And in fact, we spend way more on the public safety angle from prosecuting than we do on defense. Um, as for what reforms can be done to make this better, the sad fact of life is we simply need more lawyers. And so any reform that brings us additional lawyers. It's partially a funding issue, absolutely. But even if we had more money, we still need more lawyers to do the thing. And so we have to motivate people to want to do the job um, and to make the job a doable thing. Um, as far as within the court system, within things I could control as DA, there's a lot of time in court that's wasted. There's a lot of time with repeat appearances that don't need to happen, with documents that don't need to happen. We need to speed up the process, make the job easier and more efficient. Um, that's what I would do to make it better. I guess, Paige, if you can either launch into your initial opening statement or if you want to kind of add a little to what, what was just said, it's... Well, I was just going to follow our format as given. Okay. I think there is a, a short rebuttal to that. Uh, it is important to understand uh, budgeting and how that works. And as a uh, business runner in this office, I run an entire office of lawyers, 100 employees, 50 more uh, 50 more. Uh, volunteers every year. I have a nearly $16 million budget that I work with. I understand budgets and I understand how I have to work within that to protect your safety. Uh, right now, the public defense budget is not looking like it's doing its job. And we need to take a look at that and determine uh, where we've gone wrong with that money. Okay, then. So, um, Paige, since you were scheduled to go first with opening statement, oh, go ahead. Okay. okay, so we're going to pretend like we're starting all over now. And yes, we are sort of. 
<laughs> That's all right. Thank you, Mr. West. Uh, my name is Paige Clarkson, and I am the current Marion County District Attorney, and it's my privilege to serve this community in that way. Uh, I have worked here for over 25 years. As Mr. West said, I was an adorable law clerk before I was an old lawyer experienced in this job as I am now. I'm more than just your district attorney, however. Uh, I live in this community. I am a community member. I am a mom of four kids. My oldest is 20 uh, and my youngest is 13. So I have lots of teenagers and I'm not afraid of anything as a result. Um, I have worked in the Marion County DA's office uh, since I was in law school. I have been a lawyer here since 1999 when Dale Penn, the then district attorney, hired me. I have never left my commitment to this community. Uh, it is important to me that public safety is protected and that we stand up for your voices as members of the community and for victims of crime uh, in our county. Though so through my over two decades of service in this office, I have proven to be an experienced, effective leader, and I have that experience to do this job. I have the trusted integrity to be fair and balanced and effective for public safety. There is a spectrum in my job. Uh, there is a lot of things that need to be considered, and someone with 20 more or more years of experience understands that spectrum and understands who needs to go to prison and who needs to be diverted from our justice system as, uh, as they may just have a mental health issue or a drug addiction. And I have a track record for holding offenders accountable. You only need to look north to Portland to see what happens when you have a leader that doesn't have these qualities. We don't want that here. We need a prosecutor who leads this office, who is tried, trusted, proven. Uh, and who the community can trust to actually do this job and keep us safe. I'm not just a lawyer. I am a real prosecutor who is the right choice for our safety, for your safety. And I would be honored to be to uh, be chosen to continue to do the job of district attorney in Marion County. Spencer. Thank you, sir. Uh, my name is Spencer Todd, and I want to tell you a story about a crime victim that I represented pro bono a few months ago here in Marion County. We're going to call her Sally and let's call her husband Bill just to kind of protect people's identities. One morning, Sally and Bill got into a disagreement. Sally pushed Bill and Bill pushed Sally back. Sally did what we wanted her to do and she called the police. Bill was arrested and the DA's office pursued a no contact order, which is a common practice and a good thing in a lot of cases, but not for Sally and not for Bill. Neither of them had ever been in any real legal trouble before. Sally was more than capable of taking care of herself. Let's just say Bill was lucky she called the police instead of handling it on her own. Sally wanted to work through their relationship issues together. Bill had actually helped Sally out of a previous bad relationship a few years before. This was not the cycle of domestic violence situation we all think of. Uh, money was also tight for Sally and Bill, hence the pro bono. The no contact order made it difficult for Sally to pay rent and impossible for Bill to find housing. It also made even getting to work difficult and their financial troubles spiraled out of control. Sally asked that the no contact order be removed. The DA's office cited a policy that required her to take a class. Due to COVID, the class was months behind. Sally made multiple requests before hiring me and going to court. In court, Sally explained the situation and what she said was heartbreaking. She said she was more victimized by the DA's office and this process than by her husband. And the DA in court at the time still objected, citing her need to take the class. And by the way, the harassment case was ultimately dismissed several months later due to lack of evidence. 
I want you to remember this story every time my opponent says that she cares about crime victims. She cares about some victims. She cares about victims that agree with her. I care about all victims. I want to give victims real input and real support in their cases, even if they don't agree with me. I want to improve equal access to justice so that every person is treated fairly, regardless of their resources or where they come from. And I want to repair the damaged relationship that exists between the public and the police. I want to do all of this through hard work. You deserve a DA that will take cases and show up to court and victims deserve a better lawyer. I'm Spencer Todd and I'm running for DA because I believe we can do better. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks to this strange order that I brain blank created uh we'll go on to the agenda so um how do marion county and oregon crime rates compare to national averages and how have they changed in recent years and this will be for spencer to start um okay so the marion county primary oregon specifically is it doesn't matter how many people sign up if one person gets 50 percent plus one votes that's it so realistically may 17th will be um, the election, since it's just my opponent and I that are running. Um, as far as voter numbers, um, this is an off-year non-presidential election. And so um, typically the, the numbers are lower for turnout, especially for primary races. Um, and there's also for non-partisan races, something called undervote. Um, when somebody that um, isn't running as a partisan position goes near the end of the ballot, um, people just don't go that far down the line and they don't look to the end of the line and see all of the people that are running. So one of the things I talk about in getting out the vote is look to the end and read everything and have those conversations. Um, other than that, um, it's, it's the usual run of the mill signs and fight the whole fight and do the whole thing. Spencer, I, I didn't think I asked that question. Uh, what are they most, how do Marion County and Oregon crime rates compare to national averages? Oh, I'm sorry. You said crime rates. I, I thought you said primaries. I'm sorry. Crime rates. All right. Well, I can still answer we'll give that. You an extra minute. I can, well, I don't need the minute. I can answer in a minute. Sorry about that. That was a little extra political knowledge for everybody in case you wanted to know a little, little civics 101 lesson there. Um, so the crime rates in Oregon, um, it depends on which facts you want to believe. My opponent wrote an op-ed that claims that it's more dangerous now than ever before, although the Oregon District Attorneys Association has separately said that it's less. Um, it depends. Gun violence, violent crimes are up. Property crimes are actually not up. They are down. Um, but the, kind of the ultimate question that I ask is, are you safer now than you were four years ago? And the ultimate answer to that question with how bad things have gotten is, no, you are not safer now than you were four years ago. Um, and, you know, the only other point that I'd make is we have been trying the same things for 40 years and it hasn't worked. And, you know, it's not about letting people out or being soft on crime. It's about focusing on the violent offenses and doing a good job with solid prosecutions. Sorry for the miscommunication on the question. We learned a lot. So, Paige, on to you. Yeah, thank you, Mr. West. I'm going to address the question that was actually asked, and it's about crime specifically. Uh, crime is worse uh, than it was uh, two years ago, three years ago, and I'll tell you exactly why. It is because every branch of government has pilfered the tools that law enforcement needs to keep us all safe. Uh, I'm talking about every branch of government, the legislature. Uh, I work uh, tirelessly as the president of the Oregon District Attorneys Association at the legislature. I had to beat back bad ideas and bad, bad public safety policy. But the reality is that those have happened over the last three sessions. 
Uh, just this last short session, the legislature has decided that police can no longer stop people for lighting violations. That means police can no longer enforce laws that are actually on the books to keep us safe. When someone doesn't use required lighting, sometimes it's an error. Most of the time, it is the fact that they aren't paying attention, that they are hiding criminal activity, uh, that they are impaired or drunk on the road. That is not safe for us. And that is exactly the kind of policy that is going through our legislature. Uh, uh, repealed effectively the, the death penalty. They have lessened ballot measure 11 sentences for sexually and physically violent youth. Uh, the governor is making sure that clemency can be granted to all kinds of violent offenders. And voters, we were lied to with ballot measure 110, and we have decriminalized hard drugs, meth, cocaine, heroin, ecstasy for everyone, adults and children. These are not public safety policies. And as law enforcement professionals, and you can ask all of the law enforcement professionals, the chiefs, the sheriff, who all endorse me, we are trying very hard to keep us safe. But the other branches of government are taking from us the tools we need to do that. As your district attorney, I will continue to, to go to the legislature and argue for uh, against these policies, and I will continue to protect you as best I can with the tools we have. Do you have a rebuttal there, Spencer? Yes, sir. Thank you. Very briefly. Um, one of the bills that she just discussed is Senate Bill 1510, which doesn't go into effect until 2023. So that literally can't be having any impact on our public safety. Senate Bill 1008, which discusses juvenile justice reform and what she's talking about, about giving juveniles a chance to get out. Also only passed in 2019, OIA has authority to hold youths um, for until they're 25. So we haven't felt the effects of that either. The things that she just said are excuse making that hasn't even come into effect under law yet. Thank you. So the next question, um, what are the most important crime issues facing Marion County and how do you think we can better deal with them? Uh, go ahead, Paige. I think that's for me, Mr. West. Thank you very much. Uh, as your district attorney, our primary focus is always families and children. So our biggest, uh, our biggest concern is always those crimes that affect uh, our youth, that it, uh, include child abuse, include some of the worst possible things you can imagine that one adult might do to a child. My office protects children in doing that. Uh, in fact, we have started under my leadership a really unique and ro robust multidisciplinary team uh, that meets daily and brings together a collaborative effort of really experienced child abuse prosecutors, law enforcement professionals who investigate those crimes, uh, DHS and Liberty House to investigate crime against children in a manner and with a speed uh, that was never available before uh, my office started that program. Uh, we are always concerned about domestic violence. We are always concerned about the type of uh, violence that occurs against really vulnerable women and children. And protecting uh, the very basis of the family is uh, something that my office is extremely concerned about doing. And I am concerned about the fact that our neighborhoods don't feel as safe as they used to. The last two years with limited jail space and with limited court activity because of COVID has certainly pushed nonviolent offenders out of our jails and out of our prison system because we simply haven't had the room because of COVID uh, restrictions. We need to focus back on that as we are now climbing out of the pandemic to make sure that property offenders and those low level quality of life crimes, people who are stealing your cars, breaking into your businesses, that they are held properly accountable. And I think in our community, that is a significant concern that we need to focus on now that we are uh, trying to get out of a pandemic and attempt to address those issues. 
Uh, as district attorney, it is my job to look at all crime and make sure that I'm using resources appropriately to address it so that we not just feel safe, but that we are safe. Thank you. Spencer? Thank you, sir. Um, the, the first thing I would talk about is recidivism. I think that that's, that's ultimately the thing that we are all most afraid of, and it's a huge issue, identifying those that are high risk and high risk to reoffend um, violently are the scary people. Those are the people that need to be held accountable. Those are the people that we need to send to prison. It is what it is. That's the nature of the beast. Um, we need to do a better job of targeting those cases where there is high risk offending as a possibility in the future and prosecute accordingly. Um, and essentially we need to do a better job of prosecuting those cases. Um, you know, there's also the issue of specifically homelessness and the victims um, within the homeless community, oftentimes women and children who are unable to protect themselves. It's harder to prosecute a case in which um, someone is a victim and also homeless because likely all of the witnesses are homeless and it's just a much more difficult mechanical thing to do. So I think homelessness itself is one of the major issues we have. Um, but I think the thing that the DA that I, if I was elected, would have the most impact to do is the office management stuff, um, the current caseload, the lack of DAs in the office, and, and the fact that cases aren't getting filed and aren't getting prosecuted. I talked to a guy in Staten who had his catalytic converter stolen. The police knew who did it, arrested the guy, nothing ever came of it. And then again, after he paid to get it fixed, he had his truck stolen. I mean, those kinds of crimes are going unprosecuted. When they are prosecuted, they sit and they sit and they sit. Um, if the jail gets too full, then we basically engage in a process of settlement conferences where we give sentences out for pennies on the dollar. We give probation to people that shouldn't be getting probation because the, the caseload has grown too immense. So we need to do a better job of resolving the actual cases that come across our desk and separating out the scary ones and sending them to prison and resolving early the ones that aren't that. Thank you. Paige? Response yes, thank you. You know, I uh, I don't blame uh, my opponent for not understanding how this office works or how it runs. He has zero experience in doing so. He's been a criminal defense attorney his entire career. But my office reviews over 11,000 police reports every year. And that's just in one region in my office. Uh, crime is clearly an issue. But part of my job is making sure that we are applying our resources appropriately and that we are targeting violent crime uh, and making sure that property offenders are held accountable. I do that every day and have done it for over 20 years. Thank you. Uh, Spencer, now a question for you. And this um, is about the drug crisis we had. Ballot Measure 110 passed in November 2020 and it decriminalized, decriminalized low-level possession of various street drugs including meth, heroin, and cocaine, and also diverted many millions of marijuana tax dollars to drug treatment and recovery services. It went into effect in February of 2021. With only data from 2021, do you think this newly implemented measure is on path to significantly help deal with our drug crisis, drug abuse crisis? So your question is whether it's on track to deal with it. Um, I got to give you kind of a more complex answer than a yes or no. And I'm going to give you a little context first. So right. it, here's what we were doing before ballot measure 110. Before ballot measure 110, we were arresting people that were using drugs that weren't committing other crimes for possession and convicting them of misdemeanors, or felonies, sending them to jail, suspending their license, putting them on probation, trying to make them do treatment. 
And at the end of that road, if somebody didn't do the treatment or failed um, in some way on probation, we would send them in a revoked prison sentence, really a jail sentence up to six months, um, not addressing the problem, not helping them get better, none of that. It was an immense, immense waste of resources and it wasn't working. And that was one of the reasons why 110 came into existence. Now, 110 doesn't do everything that it was promised to do. Absolutely. People are not um, through the 110 process engaging in treatment in the way that it was envisioned. Um, it, it definitely could be better. I'm not here saying 110 is the sole answer, which is kind of why I need the, to give you the context of it's better than it was before, but we still need to do more. Um, we need to you know use evidence-based practices to maybe change the law to get the the teeth of the reform a little bit better. Um, but ultimately we got to ask ourselves this question, are the resources we spent the time and the effort from our prosecutors and from our officers prosecuting these cases, are they better spent um, going after violent crime, going after the scary stuff that we're all afraid of? I would much rather the best DAs in the DA's office prosecute the child sex offenders and the murderers and the bad guys than spend their time prosecuting possession and, and the low level stuff. The data over the last year is clear. Ballot measure 110 is not working. Uh, I was a vocal opponent to begin with. I remain a vocal opponent of it now. Uh, ballot measure 110 was sold to us as voters um, as, uh, as something that would get people treatment. It was a very slick marketing campaign paid for by out-of-state interests, uh, mostly from New York, to fund a campaign that lied to us as voters. It played on our signature Oregonian compassion and, uh, and made us believe that if we simply just didn't criminalize drugs, that all of these people would be walking into the doors to get treatment. That was just a lie. The data is very clear. Over the last year, only 19 people who have called the phone number to try to get treatment have said they wanted it. Um, only about 56 people statewide have even called the phone number. And that's over nearly 1,200 or 1,200 citations that have been issued by police officers statewide. Most people are not calling the phone number. Most people are not asking for treatment, and most people um, aren't even showing up at court. They're getting a a uh, hundred dollar fine in default from the courts that they will never pay. That is not compassion. That is not helping people. And instead, what we are doing is breeding uh, further drug use. We have traded uh, criminalizing drugs, uh, which, by the way, we usually send to uh, treatment courts and to diversion programs anyway. But we've treated giving them some sort of bridge to treatment through the law enforcement system for overdose deaths that have skyrocketed in our community and across the state. That's not compassion. And the attendant crime that accompanies drugs is not okay for our community. It makes us less safe. And the drug cartels know it. We rolled out a red carpet and put up a big neon sign uh, inviting them to our communities to sell their wares here and make us less safe. It's not a good idea and it's not working. Spencer, do you have a rebuttal? Just briefly, um, you know, ignoring who's called and who hasn't in the hotline and all of that, the money has gone to improve treatment drastically for those that do engage. So talking about the people that have called the phone is not the same as talking about the people that the millions of dollars that the bill has raised um, where they've gotten help and in a more meaningful way because of that money. Um, it's, it is about the users and better treatment leads to better outcomes.
You're tuned to all-volunteer community radio KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. This is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm Forum producer Stella Schaffer. Paige Clarkson is district attorney in Marion County and is running for re-election to the DA post in 2022. Her challenger in this year's election is Spencer Todd, also a graduate of Willamette University, who's worked as a public defender in Marion County Courts for eight years. The incumbent and challenger faced off at the midday online gathering of Salem City Club to state their positions and answer questions. Next question is about our mental health crisis for Paige. Cities across the country are creating mobile crisis response teams which dispatch medical and mental health professionals instead of police, to respond to people in mental health crisis. In Eugene, 17% of police calls are diverted to the Eugene Mobile Crisis Response Team called CAHOOTS. This also saves saves the city approximately $8.5 million per year. The Salem City Council just passed a motion to move forward with efforts to create a mobile crisis unit. Um, And the question then is, do you agree with having a Salem mobile crisis unit and why? And what other actions do you think the DA's office should recommend or help to implement to deal with this problem of dope crisis? Well, first of all, um, I'm not a city employee. I work for the county. And so my purview is over what county programs um, that we implement within the structure of those resources. I think anything that a city can do to do outreach to homeless, to those suffering from mental illness, to those uh, suffering from uh, drug addiction, anything a city can do in any one of our cities in Marion County to help that is a positive thing. What I can tell you is that as the Marion County DA, I was the uh, main architect or one of the two main architects together with former commissioner uh, uh, that uh, brought LEAD, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion to this community. And LEAD is similar to a CAHOOTS model in that it diverts people who don't need to be in our criminal justice system out uh, to other services. And it is uh, fantastically successful. Um, It has uh, 119 people currently enrolled in it. Uh, 33 of those are now permanently housed. 90, or excuse me, 22 of those are employed. uh, And eight of them have uh, their custody of their children back. That is a program that is taking navigators and getting people into services rather than into the criminal justice system. A model like CAHOOTS uh, could do something very similar, and I would love to see any city in Marion County collaborate with those really robust programs that we have here uh, at the county level, uh, collaborate with our commissioners, collaborate with our sheriff's department, collaborate with all of our city police officers to bring together those services, make them more robust, and see the kind of success that we have seen through LEAD. Um, It changes people's lives, uh, and I'm really proud of a program um, that does that, and I'm looking forward to an opportunity uh, together with our commissioners and their support uh, to increase that as well. And I think anything we can do to work with those other programs, um, like a CAHOOTS model, could really be a benefit to our community. Spencer? Yeah, a little bit about what CAHOOTS kind of specifically is to kind of explain my thinking on it. Um, So CAHOOTS is is truly a non-law enforcement response. It's it's to the, I don't want to say low level things, but the example that I always talk about is if there's a guy talking to himself in the street, 
we don't need to use law enforcement resources to inter intervene in that guy's life. A qualified mental health professional, a medical professional makes total sense. That's exactly what Cahoots' game plan is. The reason it's such a good idea is because for one, we actually need more police. Um, our police funding is not enough. We do not have enough officers. And so if you can't get more money, if you can't get more police, the next best thing is better utilizing the resources that you have. And Cahoots is exactly that. It lets our officers that we do have respond to the calls that we want them responding to. And it kind of creates out of thin air extra services for us to have. Um, the city response on Monday was great. It was a vote that ultimately led to they're going to find people that will potentially do this program. They're going to have to find the funding separately. Uh, Marion County itself has money from the legislature to do a countywide program. I, uh, I wrote an op-ed back in December um, that talks about this and why it's important. I would encourage people to look that up. I also testified at the city council um, in January about this same issue and said, we need countywide support. We need countywide intervention and leadership on this issue. Ultimately, that's up to the county commissioners, not the DA. But um, this is the kind of thing that I talk about all the time, where leadership is not just go to work, do your job. Leadership is advocate and convene and try to get the things that make sense done. And cahoots very clearly makes sense. It's one of those issues where a lot of people don't know what it is. And yet when I'm knocking on doors, there's a weirdly large number of people that say, what's your position on cahoots? And to a person, all I've talked to are people that are for it. And I literally am like, oh, hey, look me up on the lot, the op-ed. I'm totally for it. And so it's something that we need as a community. It's something we want as a community. Paige, do you have an additional comment? Well, uh, I agree with my opponent. Leadership is important. And uh, one of the differences between us is one of us has actually been a leader on these issues um, over the last 20 years. And one of them is just talking about it and writing bed. Um, this does take leadership and it takes a collaboration. And uh, I know my opponent just said these things happen out of thin air. They don't. This takes hard work. Um, and anything that any city is going to uh, create absolutely needs um, the leadership of really experienced people to support it. And I'm all in for that. Okay. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Maybe if we make it a little on the brief side, what is your position on the death penalty? Should we continue its use or eliminate it with a constitutional amendment? And uh, yeah, it's obviously it's harder to bring a death penalty argument um, in a cases now. So yeah, please go ahead, Spencer. Thank you. Um, I, I think that it's an enormous waste of resources. And I think that it's, uh, you know, not something that makes us safer um, without kind of giving too much detail into everything. The new bill that changed the law, Senate Bill 1013, um, made it so that there are fewer death sentences out in the universe, but um, ultimately we require a constitutional mandate to fully remove it. But regardless of how you feel about the morals of it, regardless of how you feel about the, the need for justice rising to punishment rising to whatever you want to call it. Um, it's incredibly cost ineffective. Um, it takes millions and millions and millions of dollars to fail to do what it purports to do. People spend 10 years, 15 years in litigation. The only death sentences that have ha been handed down recently were from two people that waived their appeal rights. Um, it also, it, when, when being carried out, it traumatizes the corrections officers that carry out the actual act itself. It's also not an effective deterrent. Um, people commit crimes either way. And, and by the way, not all victims want the death penalty. 
Um, and, and I don't want to wade too far into the religious side of things, but when you execute a human being, you take away their ability to repent with whatever God they believe in before their life on this earth is terminated. And that's something that I just can't, can't get myself to agree with. Paige? Let me be very clear. Uh, the district attorney's job is to follow the law as it is written, both in constitution and both in statute. Uh, the voters many, many years ago, as many of you probably remember, uh, were uh, more than on more than one occasion in favor of the death penalty and made it a law here in Oregon. As such, uh, my office, uh, under my leadership, as well as uh, the two prior district attorneys that I uh, that I was employed by, um, we have sought the death penalty in certain cases. Um, that's because it was the law. Um, uh, Senate Bill 1013 effectively changed that um, in all but really odd, unique cases that frankly just don't occur any longer. And then the Supreme Court in a state car, a case called Bartol uh, made that effectively retroactive to everyone who has previously been convicted of the death penalty. So for all intents and purposes, the death penalty really doesn't exist in Oregon much at all any longer. Um, but it is my job that if it did apply, that we we would seek it if we could meet the criteria as constitutionally required. That's the legal answer. Um, the, the personal answer is that when you do this job, um, and I have personally prosecuted a death penalty case that uh, the law changed in the middle of it. Uh, but when you do this job, my job, the job of the district attorney, uh, you see the worst of humanity. You see the worst things that one person can do to another. And at the end of the day, some of it is just evil. And when it fell under the, uh, the proper statutes, when that evil was to such a degree that those people should not be walking the earth with us any longer, and that the law said that they should die for those crimes, and a jury agreed, then we would seek that as appropriate. Um, our public safety demands that in certain cases. And uh, I'm grateful for prosecutors that see their job to do that for all of us. Spencer, um, if you have a rebuttal, and then uh, when you're through with that, we'll start into closing statements. Can do. Um, yeah, just briefly, uh, you know, it's a life sentence no matter what. If you get convicted of aggravated murder, life with or without parole, you you die in prison. Um, that's the way it is already. So they're not walking around with us out in the universe. But but the other thing, the real thing for me is the utilization of resources. Probably the two best lawyers in that office, Matt Kemi and Katie Suver, they're the people that do the death penalty stuff. I would much rather have them prosecuting the hard child sex cases, the hard cases where we really want the person to go and they are walking around. Thank you. So I, I believe you're first with closing statements. Certainly. Uh, politicians make promises and fail to live up to those promises all the time. I'm aware that by participating in this debate, I seem like a politician. That's really not who I am, though. I've seen firsthand what the system has become, and I've seen the need for change. So I'm going to make you a promise I can keep. When I am elected, I will not make a single decision in my entire four years in office with the thought of re-election. I will instead do the right thing every single day. I will hold criminals accountable, but I will also hold myself accountable as a public official. I won't make excuses. I won't write op-eds that blame anyone and everyone else. I won't lie to get elected. I will treat the position as truly nonpartisan. You may agree with me or you may disagree with me, but I will be responsible for your public safety all the same. 
I won't use fear tactics or misrepresent facts. I won't be soft on crime. I will be tough on injustice. I want to do the job the way it was meant to be done. Lobbying for the Oregon District Attorneys Association is a job for a lobbyist. The Marion County District Attorney needs to focus on making Marion County safe. I want to take cases, show up in court, and do the work that isn't glamorous. Doing the work yourself is good leadership, and it will lead to better and harder work from everyone in the office, especially when you treat everyone with respect regardless of their role in the office. We can always do better. Once I write the ship, reduce caseloads, and make us safer than we are right now, I'm not going to stop. For the entire four years I'm in office, I will keep asking the question, what can we do better? And to start with, I want to give crime victims real input and real support. I want to ensure that we treat everyone fairly and equally. And I want to mend the relationship between the public and the police. I'm Spencer Todd, and I'm running for DA because I believe these things will make us safer as a community. Thank you. Thank you. Paige? Thank you. Again, thanks to City Club for having us here today and for prioritizing a public safety conversation. And it really is as simple as this. Uh, on May 17th, uh, our community has a choice. Uh, you have a choice between someone who is a proven public safety leader in this community, uh, who's supported by law enforcement in droves, supported by the sheriff, supported by mayors, by the attorney general, by community leaders, by business owners, by real estate professionals. You have somebody who is a proven, tried, true, and trusted prosecutor. I am not a politician. I am a prosecutor who has committed my life, my career to this office and to our collective community safety. I am a mom. I am a wife. I am someone who cares about the safety of this community. You can choose me or you can choose a novice criminal defense attorney who has dedicated his short career to getting criminals off, getting them out of trouble and putting them back on the streets supported by his defense attorney friends um, and uh, a hope to gain some on-the-job training. I don't need on-the-job on training. I did it. I've been in the trenches. I've been the bricklayer. I am now the architect of public safety in this community. And I do that based on my experience, based on my integrity, and based on my commitment to hold people accountable. You will not find that in anyone else running for district attorney. I will protect you. I will protect this community. I will protect our children, not criminals. I am the choice for safety. So you can choose that or you can gamble and try to experiment with someone who doesn't know what they're doing and has no experience running an office. I would be honored to continue to be your district attorney in this community. And I hope you vote for safety on May 17th. Thank you. And we will go on to questions and answers now from the audience. Cindy. Thank you, Hans. This is from Les Margosian. Would both speakers comment on the lawless behavior of the far right wing militia, far right wing militias over the last two or three years and to the extent to which they weren't charged or prosecuted? And so, Paige, do you want to um, speak to that since you were part of that system? Sure, absolutely. So uh, I think the question is asking about uh, the lawlessness in general. Uh, we certainly saw lots of examples of that uh, and the uh, and the devastation that comes from it, both across the nation uh, and up in Portland. And we had our fair share of it here in Salem as uh, as the capital. We did prosecute those cases. 
um, we did file charges on a number of folks that uh, that engaged in that lawless behavior, um, regardless of what side they fell on. Uh, if they were breaking into the Capitol, if they were hurting police officers, uh, my office prosecuted those cases. Uh, a couple of them came out with felony convictions uh, and a smattering of others uh, had misdemeanor sort of disorderly conduct uh, type convictions that came out of that. Um, it is our policy and our procedure under my leadership here at the DA's office that if you break the law and we can prove it to the standard uh, that we are required to as prosecutors beyond a reasonable doubt, that we will prosecute those offenses. Uh, that was uh, both offensive to our sensibility in democracy, and it was offensive to our communities here. To the extent that it isn't prosecuted in other places, uh, I think that's wrong. If those cases are able to be uh, proven and that prosecutors can actually reach our very high burden in those circumstances, it is our obligation in a community to hold people accountable for that behavior. We did so here in Marion County. Uh, some of them were uh, very highly publicized. One of them even involved a legislator uh, in this particular community. And we did hold people accountable for that. And I'm proud of the work my prosecutors did uh, to, to meet that obligation. So just a quick follow-up on that. If people wanted more information about that that issue of the far right, as this uh, questioner asked, where would they find it for, for what work was done? Is is there a, a way well, to... I, I'm not sure what your question is, Cindy. I think it's it's relevant to what we actually prosecuted or who we prosecuted. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so we did not keep track of the philosophies that people hold when they were breaking the law. As you all know, that uh, the law is applied to everyone equally and justice is for everybody. Our concern is whether they broke the law and whether we could prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, uh, we did not track what side they were on. And in fact, uh, sometimes people's rhetoric was so offensive that it was hard to tell what side they were on to begin with. Our concern was, were they hurting law enforcement? Were they hurting other people? Were they putting people at risk? And were they damaging property? Uh, when they were doing that, we held them accountable. And frankly, it does not matter what their philosophy is or what level of speech um, or what side they fell on. We, our job is to hold them accountable for what they did. Um, thank you for that. And I, I'm sorry, I wasn't I really, I shouldn't have said far right. It's during those occasions that it was reported in the paper for follow-up, I guess. It's just hard for the public to track. So what what did happen with um, people that were either arrested or or um, somehow disciplined? So anyway, we'll move on from that. Um, <laughs> I, I, thank you for that. And Spencer, I don't know if you have anything you'd like to uh, just super briefly, I actually represented one of the people charged with one of these crimes on uh, on December 20th, um, the, the incident that we're talking about from the Capitol. And, um, you know, here's here's what I'll tell you. Um, the things that my opponent just said about prosecuting everyone even handedly, regardless of their beliefs, I uh, we finally found something that we agree on. That's nice. Um, but that wasn't what actually happened. Um, what actually happened is I don't know whether it's due to caseloads or what, but the uh, the quality of those prosecutions was suspect at best. My client um, was pending charges for more than a year, and Friday was set. Uh, Monday was set for trial, and Friday, literally 48 hours before trial, he finally watched the video and realized that it wasn't my client, um, and that my client was in a different video doing a different thing. They uh, they did not seek very many prison sentences. The biggest sentence they sought was for a gentleman for 60 months, and that man ultimately ended up going to prison for 13 months. So, I would like to hold everyone accountable if they commit a crime and we can prove it, um, but I would like to actually do so. 
Okay, thank you both for that. And this um, question, and Spencer, I think I'll just start with you since Paige started on the last one. Um, this question from Drew Cohen, how can the DA's office use restorative justice as an alternative way to respond to crime in Marion County? Or if you see yourself as using it today, how is it used today? So Spencer, you wanna start off? Absolutely. So restorative justice is this kind of um, amorphous concept of instead of looking at the case from offender specific, how do we punish or how do we hold someone accountable? It's look at the victim and say, how do we make you whole? How do we heal your unaddressed trauma? How can we get you to where you want to be in such a way that we still hold the offender accountable in a more meaningful community based process? Um, it's, it's not really done. There's no official policy right now. I, I mean, depending on on what your crime is and who your lawyer is, there's some level of outreach between the defense and the victim. And, and sometimes that does lead to a case resolution. But it's one of those things where when you have the right case and you have the right set of circumstances, it's a great thing because ultimately our focus shouldn't be just, just on punishment or just on accountability. It should say, how can we make the victim whole? And nothing does a better job of that than restorative justice. Thank you for that, Paige. I can tell you that in my over two decades of actually working with victims and speaking with victims, um, there really is no such thing as making somebody whole. What victims really want is for the offense to never have happened to them. And as uh, a legal system, as a public safety system, and as prosecutors, um, we are uh, unable to do that in every single case that I have ever handled. What we can do um, is as prosecutors try to make sure that the offender is held accountable and is required to repay uh, monetary damages, is required to uh, repay for counseling services, uh, medical bills, uh, any sort of trauma-related services for victims, we can ask the court to order that. And, and that is part of holding offenders accountable. That is part of seeking some sort of restitu uh, restitution and restore restorative justice or restoration to victims. Uh, what we cannot do is, is undo it. What we cannot do is give the grieving parents their child back who's been killed in a DUII offense. What we cannot do is make the domestic violence never to have happened. And in some circumstances, when dealing with really violent offenses, it is just our obligation to seek accountability uh, and make sure that the whole community is safe. There is a bit of a confusion sometimes about who we represent. And as prosecutors, I that entire community. I represent public safety. My job is simply to seek justice. And, uh, and that is a very clear path um, with a lot of possibilities um, that, uh, that come from that and can possibly be the, uh, the outcome. So victim's input is extremely important, but I also have to weigh uh, what is right for public safety, what is right for our community. Um, we're going to do all of those things as prosecutors. Okay, and we have one final question, and this is is kind of a rapid answer for a pretty complicated issue. So, um, Paige, you had mentioned the governor's pardon, the bulk pardons that were done um, in the midst of COVID, and if you could each comment um, directly on the pardoning itself, whether you agreed with it or not, and what impact it has had both from a DA's perspective, Paige, 
and just defense community, Spencer. So yeah, the the commutations and the pardons has been have been often talked about. Um, there's actually kind of a, a clarification that needs to happen between pardon and commutation and what the governor using her authority actually is. Some people get released out to the street like you think of when you hear the words, but some of these cases, especially when it comes to juveniles, are being offered essentially the chance to have a parole hearing, which is a totally different thing. And anytime there's more process in that situation where we're looking back, and especially where the governor based her decision to do that on the passage of Senate Bill 1008 and applying that retroactively, treating those kids as if they had been sentenced with that law that's now in effect, I'm a, I'm a process guy. I love process. I think that we need more of it. But um, when it comes to the other pardons, it's a case-by-case basis. Um, even as far as the defense com- community goes, I've had a million clients that you know apply for it and shouldn't. And I've seen people that should get pardoned and don't. I mean, it's a, you know, in the one minute I have, and I want to give Paige some time. So really in the 10 seconds I have uh, complicated, um, I'm for some of it and some of it, you know, I don't know the answer to the question. Fair enough. Paige. Uh, so let's be really clear. The governor has the authority to pardon people and uh, grant clemency. So that is absolutely within her authority. I think the question was whether I agree with it. Um, and in most cases and in the most recent uh, the most recent sweeping pardons and clemency orders um, and in most of the clemency applications that come through to my office, I am not for it. Um, when you talk about process, there is an entire process that happened for each one of these offenders, most of whom are extremely violent and dangerous for our communities. And they all got processed. Many had jury trials. Many had cases dismissed or uh, circumstances dismissed as part of a plea deal that they hold themselves accountable to. Uh, and judges passed those sentences. Learned judges who understood the facts, who understood all of the circumstances going into those cases. That process occurred for every single one of those offenders. And with a single pen, with a single decision, the governor undid that, undid that modicum of justice that victims have a right to uh, in our system. So in general, I have been vocal that I do not agree with those clemencies. I do not agree with those pardons. And I believe they make our communities less safe. And as a district attorney, it's my job to make sure that doesn't happen. Okay, thank you both. I'm afraid we're out of time and I'm sorry for that, but we'll listen to more from you both on the campaign trail. You've been listening to Spencer Todd and Paige Clarkson, the candidates for Marion County District Attorney in this election year. KMUZ would like to thank Salem City Club for the audio recording to make this program. And the entire panel discussion and Q&A is permanently posted on the City Club archive at SalemCityClub.com. This is Community Radio KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting local news and public information for the Mid-Willamette Valley. This program is aired on Fridays at noon and repeated Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening.